everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, and defense. In this episode, discussing the shape of the European Union, past and present, not least in the face of the war in Ukraine. As ever, we have two outstanding women with us to discuss these issues. Dr. Natalie Tocci, Director of the International Affairs Institute in Rome, a former Special Advisor to the EU High Representatives, and a renowned specialist on EU foreign and security affairs. We're also very pleased to welcome Caroline de Grutter, a journalist and writer on EU and international affairs, and most recently an author of a book on the Habsburg Empire and the EU. Welcome, ladies. Thanks very much for joining us. We look forward to a great conversation. And as ever, let's start with each of you introducing yourselves and your careers. Natalie. Well, thank you, Ilana, and it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, So, yes, I mean, a few kind of words about myself. Um, I guess I'm someone that never kind of really, uh, and still hasn't really figured out what she wants to do, Uh, in the sense that I um, have always straddled different worlds, Um, I consider myself to be someone with, you know, in some respects with an academic background, uh, but that has not fully entered academia. I mean, I teach at the University of Tübingen. I'm an honorary professor there. Uh, I've recently taught at the Harvard Kennedy School, but I don't consider myself to be a kind of full-on academic. I have always uh, been in the think tank world. In fact, my first job at the Center for European Policy Studies when I was, what, 23, um, has actually been a constant. First at the Center for European Policy Studies, uh, at the Schumann Center, uh, in, in Florence, um, at the Transatlantic Academy in Washington, and then uh, for obviously the longest period of time at the Institute for International Affairs in Rome, uh, which I now, now direct. So that has always been a constant. But alongside it, there have also been other uh, sort of pieces to my career uh, in the institutions. Um, so I have been a special advisor to two high representatives, Federica Mogherini and Giuseppe Borrell, uh, which I recently stopped uh, doing only in February of, uh, of this year. And then more recently, since 2013, uh, so really in the last kind of 10 years or so, I've also had some experience in the private sector, particularly by sitting as a non-executive independent member on boards, in particular boards of two energy companies, first first a sort of rather smaller energy company called Edison, uh, and now a much larger one, which is uh, Italy's main energy company, Eni. Uh, And that has been a sort of fascinating experience because it's kind of added that private sector um, sort of eye onto, at the end of the day, the policy world. So I guess to sort of sum it up, Think tanks as really uh, the place which really connect different worlds have been the constant. And alongside it, there's been sort of academia, institutions and the private sector in different shapes and forms over the years. That's fantastic. And I very much identify with that as somebody who has more or less followed um, the same path, um, mixed basket or a mixed bag, as um, some of us call it. But yeah, total commitment to academia is quite difficult unless you have the vocation, I think. Caroline, perhaps you can tell us about your background. Uh, well, I'm a journalist. Um, I'm not so much a news getter. I've never been, but uh, I'm I'm more a journalist, let's say, of the of the political undercurrents in Europe. 
I started out uh, writing for Dutch news magazines and newspapers, and then I moved to the Middle East uh, in 1994 and never came back to the Netherlands. Uh, I usually follow my nose and also my heart. <laughs> I first came to Brussels in 1999 and um, started discovering uh, Europe because uh, being Dutch, uh, you don't really know what Europe is, uh, let alone what it is not. I was taught with um, no Europe classes at, at all at school. We were told uh, Europe was a market and it was good for Philips and Unilever, which were then uh, total Dutch companies. And that was basically the end of it. So uh, uh, it was quite a, quite a, a discovery uh, that there was really, you know, a lot going on in Europe and especially uh, in, in the 2000s and the 2010s um, when Europe became much more uh, political uh, because of globalization, because of many factors that we will undoubtedly discuss uh, in this podcast later. Uh, I work for a newspaper in the Netherlands, uh, NRC Handelsblad. I work for foreign policy, for EU Observer, mm. sometimes from Brussels, but oftentimes also I spend a couple of years in other European countries. I've been to uh, living in, in Geneva for a couple of years, in Vienna, in Oslo, and I just returned for the third time to, to Brussels. And what fascinates me is how... Europe uh, keeps changing. Europe is a sort of a reactive uh, beast. It always reacts to things uh, around it. And since uh, the world around us is in complete turmoil right now, um, we must in some way respond. And I've just written a book about how, how, how we do respond or in a way also how we don't uh, respond because it's always troublesome. So basically, I do what I like, looking at Europe and how it changes. And there's a lot of that right now. Yes, there is indeed. And I think we will move to your book very, very quickly because it's a fascinating book. But you raised one issue, which I just want to check with you, Natalie, very quickly. Were you taught about Europe in school? I was not taught about uh, Europe in school. I mean, I, um, I guess, indeed, I mean, Europe was not really the subject um, it was something that I, I guess I kind of lived because I went to an, a, a sort of rather international school. So in a sense, it was kind of fairly clear to me that Europe would then be the space, in a sense, uh, within which I would um, sort of somehow develop both professionally and eventually per personally. I mean, I, I went, I didn't stay in Italy for university. I went to the United Kingdom. Uh, my husband is Spanish. I lived in, in Belgium. So uh, in a sense, kind of Europe has really been the space of my personal and my professional development, but I was not taught Europe in school. I only really studied studying Europe at university indeed. Well, I think we all of us have that in common, and that's one of the things that's really quite fascinating, which leads back to your book, Caroline, um, which is about the Habsburg Empire. Perhaps you can tell us about it. But I wonder whether people learned about the Habsburg Empire when the empire was there and when they were living in it. <laughs> well, um, uh, I, I, I wrote the book, actually, uh, to explain what uh, the EU is and what it is not as well, because in my view, we always have the wrong expectations of the, the European Union. You know, in some way, uh, the, 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 whole, the entire debate about Europe is hijacked 
by the federalists on one side and the nationalists on the other. And for the federalists, there's always too little Europe. It's never enough. They're always disappointed because Europe takes, you know, all the compromise decisions uh, between member states mostly are compromises of compromises. So they're permanently disappointed. And the nationalists, they always think that Europe is too powerful and uh, they're they're always disappointed uh, too. So in a way, if you really look at Europe, as I've learned to do, and Natalie as well, over the past decades even, you see that actually Europe is, depending on the issue, is sometimes very powerful and sometimes utterly powerless. So it's a halfway house permanently. And I realized this only when I lived in Vienna, which was the capital of the Habsburg Empire for 600 years. And I discovered actually that they were they were muddling through in a way, although it was a top-down structure, it was a different time, democracy had a different meaning than it has now, uh, especially in the last 100 years that I focused on. But by listening to all the nations in the empire, everybody had to be uh, heard and had to be part, had to recognize himself in the decisions. So they took the same muddy decisions. It was as much a halfway house as the EU is. So what I do in the book, I use, I explain how the Habsburg Empire works in order to explain how the EU works. That's really fascinating. Perhaps for our listeners who aren't historians and have not been taught this in school, then the Habsburg Empire was the empire, it was called a dual monarchy also, between, um, it's sometimes called the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it was headed by the House of Habsburg. It did indeed cover what we now know as Austria and Hungary, but expanded far beyond. Perhaps you could tell us, um, Caroline, sort of more or less how many countries of today were part of the empire. Romania, Serbia? Yes, there were many countries uh, now that were sort of half part of the empire. Um, So I think it is about 12, uh, even the western part of Ukraine, the southern part of Poland, the northern part of Italy. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I was sitting with somebody yesterday, for example, it was quite funny, we were discussing no less than the sound of music. And they were saying, it's ridiculous. How could he have been a captain in the Austrian Navy in 1939? And we immediately said, aha, um, it's left over from Trieste, which had used to be part of the Habsburg Empire. Natalie, do you think that what Caroline is talking about is relevant to today's EU? Absolutely. I mean, you know, and we've been seeing it um, in a sense kind of progressively so, especially I mean, you know, if, if you take, in a sense, the period between 2005 and, um, and today, really, um, you have seen uh, moments in which, and I would say sort of from 2005 through to 2020, were moments in which the kind of EU's Habsburgian um, kind of, you know, modus operandi, um, certainly enabled it to muddle through, uh, not in my view to kind of make uh, significant strides forward, but but certainly not to, to collapse. I think it was it was true, um, you know, if you think of what, you know, the 2005 constitutional treaty crisis, 2008 onwards Eurozone crisis, 2015 onwards migration crisis, 2016 Brexit referendum. So across all of these consecutive existential crises, 
at each and every point, the EU looked like it was on the verge of collapse. It didn't really kind of rise to the challenge in a decisive way, and yet it kind of muddled through. I think what's interesting is that this kind of Habsburgian way of operating, if you look at the way in which the EU has handled both the pandemic crisis and arguably, of course, the jury is still out on the war, but arguably, possibly uh, on the war in Ukraine as well, is a Habsburgian way of, of kind of operating, which has gone beyond the mere um, you know, sort of keeping it together and, and not collapsing and muddling through, but has kind of rediscovered the ability to sort of see and seize opportunity out of, of crisis. I think this is certainly the case uh, with, with the pandemic. As I said, it remains obviously to be seen because we're still in the midst of it, whether it's going to be the case uh, in, in, in the case of the war in, in Ukraine. But um, I think, you know, so far, uh, there are kind of signals that suggest that we may be doing actually rather well in this respect. I think that's a very interesting um, take on it. But the question is whether beforehand, do you think it was just muddling through? Or was it, it constructing, if you want, the basis for creating the, the capability now? Well, it's difficult to say, really, isn't it? Because it, exactly, I mean, I guess if you kind of look at these consecutive crises um, and you take them, um, you know, in a kind of, you know, sort of separate, discrete way, um, then indeed you could look at them as, well, you know, crisis X, Y, and Z, we didn't exactly do fantastically well, uh, and then comes the next crisis and, and, and we do better. But I hadn't thought of it, Jan, in the way in which you just posed the question, and you may actually be right. It could be that that muddling through in the previous crises uh, created the basis for actually taking a step forward in the, you know, in, in the next crisis. And for instance, you know, I mean, if you take... Um, you know, our, I, I think, you know, rather obvious failure uh, in the course of the migration crisis, right, in really moving forward towards a common asylum and migration policy. That's in 2015. Exactly. But And then you look at the line connecting it now to the war in Ukraine, and in particular, the granting of temporary protection uh, to Ukrainian refugees, but also the way in which this may be instilling a move forward when it comes to uh, asylum and, and eventually migration policy as well. I think you may actually be right. You know, the failure of that past may actually be, you know, have within it the seeds of a success in a sense in future. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And Caroline, did the Habsburgs also, what appeared to be muddle along, were actually each time creating another little step that enabled them to stay together? Yes. Uh, yes, they did in, 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 in many ways. I mean, the Habsburg Empire was a state and the EU is not a state. It had one foreign policy, one army, but the dynamics internally were much the same as ours. People always say, oh, those people in Brussels are taking decisions for us. No, it's our own governments, you know, uh, and they decide in, 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 in different ways. But like all the nations, 12 uh, in, 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 the, in the last uh, 100, 150 years of, of, uh, of the empire, um, they all sort of had to own uh, decisions. So sometimes, and it's exactly the same now, Sometimes uh, member states want to want to act themselves, and they don't want Europe to do it. They only um, they only ask Europe 
to 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 uh, to take over if they fail to do it themselves individually. We so this is why, why we're always late with everything. And then every nation, every country comes to Brussels with a different interest, just like all the nations and language groups and religious groups and whatnot in, in the Habsburg Empire. And they all have their own history, their own languages, their own hang-ups, their own taboos, and so on, and wish lists. And then they start haggling, you know. And often um, the haggling uh, is, 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 is producing sort of such a mediocre result. Even there's academic studies about this. It, and they have found a word for it, failing forward. So during the Euro crisis, for instance, you would see this. And this was uh, what you saw in the Habsburg Empire as well. They took measures because indeed, as Natalie says, they stand at the precipice with all their uh, conflicting demands and they see how deep it is down there. And then they go back to the negotiating table and compromise a little bit more. But sometimes that is not even enough to put out the fire. So the fire after a couple of months flares up again, but really heavily. So they have to go back uh, negotiating uh, and do more, failing forward. And exactly the same you would see in the Habsburg Empire, where many uh, nations, for instance, Hungary, behaved exactly the same way as they do now in the European Union, blocking, uh, you know, there, there, there was a war going on somewhere, the, the empire, which hated conflict, because you cannot fight with, with, with 11 or 12 or 13 groups um, uh, who all have different ideas about, about this conflict, and some don't even see it. Um, so they, they would always uh, uh, have to react somehow in a defensive way. Uh, but if uh, the Hungarians didn't want to pay for the army and didn't want to send soldiers, uh, you know, they would, they would lose a battle very often. And there are lots of these dynamics that uh, when you study uh, Habsburg history that you recognize uh, today, every day almost. Natalie, is it always dependent on haggling? Do you have to be the best haggler? You, um, no, I'm not sure you have to be the best haggler. You need to be, um, uh, you need to be able to spot uh, where a critical mass of a potential majority, which eventually becomes a consensus, actually is, is formed. So you need to be able to sort of spot those potential coalitions and then make them actual. If, if I may, like Ileana, can I ask a question actually to go down to Caroline about? We're here to discuss. But well, we started off talking about academia, and one thing, you know, and, and to what extent, you know, sort of we'd studied uh, Europe, um, you know, when uh, yesterday when we were very young, basically. <laughs> one thing that I found really quite striking about sort of European studies is that indeed, when I studied it at university, Basically, um, you know, the story really was one of, um, you know, the European Union was essentially established, you know, to consolidate peace in Europe after the Second World War and the coal and steel and, you know, the, the story that we've kind of grown up with. And of course, that's a real story. What's interesting about European studies today, so, you know, um, students that start studying European studies today at university, they are they're taught this story, but there's another story which is emerging alongside this, which is really about 
Europe and, and sort of European integration having also, I mean, this is not an alternative, it's just a sort of um, an additional uh, reason for European integration, having been established in order to manage the collapse of empires. Um, and I just wondered sort of, you know, how what, what your take on this, the need to have uh, a European, you know, a, a European integration project, you know, something bigger than nation states uh, in order to support these shrinking uh, states as they were decolonizing, essentially. I can give you a very concrete example of that. It's a Dutch example, actually. After the Second World War, when we were all trying to, you know, to find some kind of a new order on the European continent. The Dutch, having just been occupied by Germany for five years and hating France as a matter of principle almost, when something goes wrong, we always blame the French, right? In the Netherlands, you've seen that many times too. So the Dutch started working on a transatlantic sort of trade agreement, a union somehow, loose union based on trade. Well, obviously, then came uh, coal and steel, uh, the French and the Germans uh, doing this together. They had not involved the Netherlands. Why? Because they knew the Dutch were working on something else, something not continental, but with the UK and, and the US. And they would probably shoot it down if they would involve them. So the Dutch heard it on the radio, really. And the government was furious because Germany and France, those two big ones that they, uh, you know, go in together. And then the Dutch, they had a, a couple of weeks of soul searching. They didn't have more time, whether to join it or not. Together with uh, Luxembourg, I mean, there was Italy, uh, Belgium. They didn't want it. They hated it. But they had just, they were losing their colonies. So the Dutch economy was sort of half amputated. German, in the early 1950s, the German economy was totally booming again. The Netherlands became very rapidly, they had the first trade agreement with Germany. They became a, a province of Germany. So they needed to be part of this new grouping, even though politically they hated it completely because of the loss of empire. And I think this is one just small, concrete example of why the Dutch stepped in to this new European small reality, which nobody knew would grow out uh, to a powerful and very political EU uh, that it is now. But for other member states, uh, it held true as well. I think that's absolutely true. And it's a very, very good point that you raised, Natalie. Um, we could also take it in the inverse, if you think about it, that once the Cold War ends, then it became a means to contain the fallout of the collapse of another empire, the Soviet empire, by taking in um, the other states, because it would have been untenable to have all of these states that were all going broke, sitting between a collapsing Russia and an EU. So it did become a vessel, if we think about it from that point of view, for containing yet another collapsing empire. So I think, sorry. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I'm kind of wondering why is it that it's taken us, in a sense, so many decades huh? <laughs> to kind of sort of see this alternative 
story behind European integration. Yes. Uh, you, you know, I, I just kind of wonder, wonder what, what, what is behind it. And it, it is obviously also partly, you know, to do with the fact that, you know, one is used to thinking of empires as kind of, you know, aggressive things where the agency of the colonized, in a sense, uh, doesn't really kind of feature much in the discussion. Um, whereas in the case of the European Union, it's it's the reverse, right? And, you know, it's, it's in a sense, the quote-unquote colonized that want to be part, because they're not really colonized. I mean, they want to be, you know, it's the, it's the agency of the self that wants to be part of something bigger, precisely in order to express itself, you know? Uh, and so perhaps it's that mismatch that has kind of explain why it's taken us so long to kind of read it, you know, through that that lens, basically. It reminds me of uh, what, what President uh, Macron says sometimes. We need a strong EU to have a strong France. France, in its operations in North Africa, needs other European states to be there because it cannot do it, it on its own anymore. It's another example. That's very, very true. I remember, rather like you, um, Caroline, I, I arrived in Brussels uh, in 1999 and really knew very little about it and had worked for the UN for quite a few years beforehand. So assumed that it was an international organization rather like the UN. Um, it took some time in Brussels to work out that no, 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 this is entirely different. It has got nothing at all to do with an international organization. And that, if I may, its main strength was the fact that there was its own budget that was not dependent on the member states coughing up and that there was, of course, all the other institutions with one of them with the right of it, very limited, but nonetheless with the right of initiative in a certain amount of areas. So you could never completely collapse it by member states. If you see what's happened in other organisations, usually the member states just decide, no, we don't want a strong secretariat, we don't want them to do their own thing, we'll move along. Um, you have, there's two other points that I think are very relevant, though, to the Habsburgs if we come back to it. One of them is, what is the centre of Europe? At the end of the day, as long as it was Western Europe during the Cold War, there was a lot of logic to Brussels being the, 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 the centre and for France and Germany, if you want, being Hungary and Austria of the Hungarian-Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs. Is that true now? Didn't Habsburgs at the end of the day control Central Europe? Um... Yes, they did, but they also filled a big void. <laughs> you know, they were surrounded by other empires. And those empires were continuously trying to weaken this, the, the Habsburg Empire in the middle by biting off pieces of land and trying to peel off even, you know, nations that were, you know, on the, on the border. There's always some kind of cultural, language, uh, religious osmosis. Um, but at the same time, so they wanted to weaken it, but they didn't want it to collapse because then there would be a huge black hole in the center of Europe uh, and they could all be sucked in. And some kind of a similar uh, process we see, we see nowadays, you know, with Russia, uh, with Turkey, with other players, China, trying to weaken us, you know, pulling the rug a little bit from underneath us, but at the same time being careful not to cause a total collapse because that would harm them too. So there are, in a way, uh, similar dynamics at play right now. 
Natalie, do you think that the center of gravity is moving towards what was the Habsburg Empire, moving from west to east, especially in light of the war in Ukraine? Um, I mean, I think that if this was a conversation about NATO, uh, the answer would unambiguously be yes. Central gravity very clearly shifting. I would I wouldn't say um, just east. I would say north and east. Given that it's a conversation about the EU, and I connect this back to uh, the remarks I was making about kind of identifying coalitions, uh, winning coalitions, and kind of critical mass. I think that the potential is there for a shift of, of a center of gravity, but it will really depend on the ability to forge those coalitions. Now, I, I think it would be, um, you know, because in many respects, you could actually see increasing fragmentation in Eastern Europe. I mean, you know, I mean, we no longer talk about the Visegrad good, uh, group uh, these days, do we? And I would add, thankfully so, <laughs> given that they were not exactly, the, it wasn't exactly the most constructive grouping in a sense for European integration. So I think it's really a question of, you know, to what extent are Eastern European member states able to forge uh, coalitions, winning coalitions, be it with one another, or be it with West, South, North, whatever, uh, uh, member states, in order to drive forward European integration, be it on economic governance, on migration, on security, on energy, on climate. So I think that's the key, in a sense, to see, to, I, I guess, to sort of boil it down, I wouldn't look at this as a center of geographic uh, gravity, but rather of policy gravity, in a sense. If I can add a little bit to that, I think uh, Brexit, in a way, is 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 a product of this, um, because the uh, the UK has very much pushed enlargement. Huh? They didn't want to have a politically deeper Europe, smaller and deeper, uh, but rather a larger, bigger market. Huh? So they pushed for this, but then in also in the market sense. The, the center of gravity uh, moved eastwards, which I think added to the, to the uh, British feeling of, you know, being on an island and far away from everything. But I agree totally with, with, with Nathalie that the, the political center, I mean, the French-German axis uh, is, is, is still there. Most of the big policy ideas still come out of Paris. And even if everybody shoots holes in them always immediately, they're the only ones who, who sort of formulate um, solutions uh, required by uh, events, events to which we always uh, react. And Macron is especially good at it. But I remember during Hollande's presidency, Hollande was so uh, busy with himself and keeping, keeping his coalition alive that there were no ideas coming out of, of Paris anymore. Remember this during the Euro crisis? There are no, there are no ideas coming, not real ideas coming out of, uh, of Berlin either. And then there were no ideas anymore. And everybody was asking, uh, where is France? We need France as a motor. Natalie, I can't help um, asking you on the back of that. Um, in Italy, do you think Italy is now going to um, generate more ideas for the EU or is Italy going to carry on with its understandable preoccupations with the Mediterranean and keeping everything else in place in internal politics? 
Well, I think actually, you know, sort of Italy in particular, this government, I mean, the Draghi government has actually been playing a rather interesting role, precisely because it hasn't actually behaved in that sort of, you know, usual suspect kind of way. So, yes, obviously, Italy cares for the south and the Mediterranean, what have you. But here we are, that unlike France and Germany, Italy uh, and this government has and is openly supportive of the idea of Ukraine's EU membership. Uh, so again, you know, sort of thinking about um, different coalitions, you know, I mean, I think it'd be extremely important, for instance, for East European member states that obviously want to push this agenda, not to kind of fall back in the sort of usual East versus West dynamic, but actually embrace the fact that you have a member state like Italy or indeed Spain, yeah, that are in a sense acting in a rather let's say, unconventional way in this respect, huh? because this is the kind of winning coalition that actually drives forward. In the end, obviously, Paris and Berlin will have to accept, but it'd be very difficult to hold out against it once you have that kind of coalition coalescing, basically. <laughs> Very, very interesting. We can't, of course, talk about the Habsburg Empire without talking about the end of the empire, which came after not only 600 years, but came after or during, in fact, the First World War, the death, first of all, of Franz Josef, who'd been on the um, crown for 70 years, I believe, just slightly less than Queen Elizabeth II. (laughs) But uh, nonetheless, 600 years just suddenly collapsed. We can have lots of discussions about the end of lots of empires, but um, how would that be seen in light of the Ukraine war? And this is to both of you. The Ukraine war, end of empire for the EU or strengthening the empire of the EU? Um, Let's start with the beginning, Um, the end of the Habsburg empire. We all think, and this is how history books are written, always by the victors, of course, we all think that the Habsburg Empire uh, collapsed because of nationalism. But I don't think this was the case. It collapsed because of the war. And this is why you are making the analogy, I guess, with the Ukraine war and, and the EU. When the First World War broke out, people were queuing up, lining up, uh, volunteering for the war and fight for the Kaiser. But because this war was a bad one, because they multinational entities, uh, as the son of the last Kaiser once said, cannot fight offensive wars uh, because you you need all the noses in in the same direction. So the war effort went went very badly. All the money went to the front. So the the state, the the empire, stopped delivering goodies uh, to to its different parts. People lost their salaries. Uh, reforms were stopped, political reforms, the parliament was closed and so on. And that's when people turned to the nationalists. So the lesson for me is not that the EU can fall apart because uh, because of nationalism as such, but that um, it can fall apart because, and maybe uh, the Ukraine war uh, could be an element in that, because we live in conditions in which the EU cannot uh, deliver added value anymore and nationalists thrive suddenly. Destruction, chaos, war, poverty, hunger, all that. That's the analogy. That could be the analogy. Fascinating. Natalie? 
Yes, I mean, I, I totally agree. Now, I think that if the Ukraine war marks the end of an empire, I think that is basically the sort of last act of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So if anything, that is the empire, which I think we already know is probably going to be the casualty in a sense, huh? the welcome casualty perhaps uh, of, uh, of this war. But then to the question of what is it going to do to the EU, I think it will... It, it depends on policy outcomes. Uh, you know, I think that if uh, the EU manages, much like in the case of the pandemic, to deliver good policy, uh, then the political uh, repercussions are not going to go in the direction that Caroline was uh, mentioning, meaning fueling nationalist populism, etc. Um, but of course, it could go the other way. Uh, if we don't handle uh, the war well in all of its policy ramifications, it could do just that. And, you know, whereas um, you could have European states that can be nationalist and populist and perhaps even fascist, right? You cannot have a European Union uh, that is nationalist and populist and fascist by definition. I mean, the European Union is an intrinsically kind of liberal project. Huh? Um, and so it really depends on, 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 this is why I think it essentially depends on those policy outcomes. It could go both ways. At the moment, as I said, I am relatively optimistic that we have learned the lessons in the sense of the past, or as you would put it, to begin with, Ileana, you know, we are building uh, on the basis in the sense that we, that we sold um, over the last few decades. I think that's very, very true. I would put it maybe slightly differently to both of you. Isn't there money involved? Inherent in what you were saying, Caroline, was the idea that as a market and as a multiplier of economic opportunity, the Habsburg Empire was terribly important to each individual component. And part of the collapse was all the mess that came after the First World War. And in many ways, I put it to you that isn't one of the aims of uh, Russia or Putin not so much to fight NATO, but to fight the economic prosperity and democracy of the EU. And um, isn't it inherent that he would win or Russia would win if the EU could no longer be an economic powerhouse that also provides for all its constituent nations? Natalie? Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure Putin has the expectation that he can achieve that. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, sort of Putin is probably intimately persuaded of the fact that precisely because we are prosperous societies, we're actually not, which is exactly the opposite of how we would look at it, we're not resilient. We're not resilient in the sense that we have a, a, a low endurance to pain. I mean, we're kind of comfortable and rich and, and kind of peaceful, whereas the kind of tough nationalist society has a much higher uh, sort of ability to endure pain. So I think that's, in a sense, that that's the risk that we're facing. The fact that the relative, not, not necessarily absolute, but the relative reduction of that prosperity, and in particular, the relative exacerbation of inequalities uh, that come with it, right? Um, that is what makes us less resilient and more open, in a sense, to be captured by nationalists. This is what happened in the past. Huh? Uh, and it could happen again, again, you know, it could happen again if we don't handle um, the, the, the potential fallouts of this war well. Caroline? I think the economic story is just 
part of it. Uh, what you see is that Putin is clearly completely copy-pasted the, 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 the market idea uh, in Central Asia, and trying to rebuild sort of a, a, a copy of the European Union. But of course, uh, that's, only, that's only part of the story because we are becoming more and more a political force as well. Uh, and this is what he, what, he, what he can't stand either, of course. Uh, um, I'm, um, I think I agree with saying that uh, it is not really NATO that, that irks him. It is uh, in large part the EU. And this is why I think he invaded uh, Crimea or annexed <laughs> Crimea and invaded the Donbass in 2014, just after, um, what is it called again? The special trade agreement with between the EU and... Um, the association agreement. The association agreement, thank you. <laughs> between the EU and uh, Ukraine. Uh, so I think he's, he's uh, yeah, he can't stand that. But it gives us a, a political force uh, right now in many ways uh, that, that is, I think, what, what is angering him most or irritating him most. Ladies, that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you very, very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Natalie Tocci, and Caroline de Crutel. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, together with Florence Ferrando. Thanks so much for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations. Mm-hmm.